0: You know, just to, just to kind of explain what we've been doing for the past couple weeks, uh, we've been talking about the kind of church that we want to be, and this is kind of a time where a season in our lives and the lives of the church where we're uh, resetting a little bit. We're trying to figure out, or not figure out, but we're trying to set a course in terms of uh, what is God calling us to do, uh, us as a people specifically as Good News Church, and trying to build uh, maybe a new identity and new culture as, as a body of believers. And what we've been saying is that we want to be a church that builds bridges. And uh, bridges typically are things that connect people, that bring things together. And uh, as I've been saying, if you just think about the bridges uh, all around Manhattan, uh, they're super important in terms of uh, the infrastructure of the city and what New York City is like. And especially in a time in uh, the world where there are so many things dividing people and so many bridges being burned, uh, one of the things that we believe is it's the task of the church to bring a message of reconciliation and, and togetherness through the, through the gospel. So we want to be a church that builds bridges. And specifically, there are three kinds of bridges that we want to build. And if you think about each bridge that we want to build, it, it should actually cover uh, any kind of person that might find their way here. You know, the first kind of bridge we want to build is a bridge to belong. And uh, the last four weeks, we spent a series, uh, four sermons, talking about what that means. And that'll include people who are new to New York, new to this church, new to Christianity, people who are exploring Christianity and so forth. We want to try to build bridges so that they can somehow connect to this spiritual community. Uh, And the second kind of bridge that we want to build is a bridge of growth, a bridge to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ, to know him, to know what he says, to know what he calls us to do. And that's what we're going to start today. And finally, we're going to start talking about the third kind of bridge we want to build is a bridge a partnership, and that should include just uh, any other believer or any other kind of ministry or church uh, that we might come into contact with. So we want to be a bridge-building church. Now for the next couple of weeks, uh, next three weeks in particular, we're going to start talking about the second kind of bridge, and that is a bridge to grow. And basically what we mean by that is very simple. Uh, We're talking about discipleship, which is intimately tied to the mission of all churches. And we're going to look at a passage here that is probably familiar to uh, many people. If you are somebody who grew up in the church, you might have heard this passage before, and oftentimes it's linked with this idea of mission. And it should be linked with this idea of mission, but every, uh, maybe uh, we, we kind of the the main point of linking this passage actually with discipleship. This passage is not saying that the Great Commission is to go and to uh, make converts and to make people make a profession of faith, but it's actually wider and broader. This passage is actually saying make disciples, which of course includes a profession of faith, but it does not end there. And if you look at this passage in the Greek especially, uh, it's very clear because the main verb in the Greek is to make disciples, and the other verbs are uh, simply ways to show us what that means. So going, baptizing, and teaching They are all there to describe to us what it means to make disciples. Now, if you think about the word disciple, uh, at least in my opinion, I think it's a better word to describe uh, what it means to be a Christian than the word Christian. And uh, this country has a history of Christianity, and so uh, it's not uncommon to meet somebody who has a background in Christianity, who grew up in the church, and uh, whenever I meet someone, they eventually find out that I'm a pastor and I I have these set responses when they find out I'm a pastor because some people they'll they'll respond with like uh oh okay and I'll I'll have a response to that kind of response and they'll some some people will respond a little bit uncomfortably they'll be like oh you're a pastor and I'll assume that they they grew up in the church because people who grew up in the church feel very guilty I think when they meet clergy and uh there's other people who are you know smile and go oh and they're kind of excited oh you're a pastor and I'll usually ask, oh, okay, so if, uh, have, you, have you ever met a pastor before? What's, what's like your uh, religious background? What's your history of faith? And I'll, a lot of times people will say, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'll go, oh, you're a Christian. Uh, so where, where do you go to church? And they would say something to this effect. Oh, you know, I, I don't go to church because i 'm not very religious at all uh, i 'm a Christian because I grew up in it. My parents were Christian, but i, I don 't really believe uh, in everything and all of that stuff anymore. I just kind of like the morals and, but I've found my own uh, way of spirituality and uh, so often uh, probably the majority of the time of the people that I meet uh, that that is their response uh, I, I met this Uber driver and I was talking to him too. I was like oh what do you do i 'm like oh, i'm a pastor." And uh, he said, "Oh, you know, that's that's great." And then he's like, he said the very same response. He's like, "Yeah, you know, I've kind of found my own way of spirituality." And I said, uh, I kind of pushed back a little bit on him on that. And I invited him to church. I haven't seen him yet, but he said he would come. But I think the way a lot of people uh, understand this word Christian uh, is is a little bit like an inherited identity. The way some people say, "Well, I'm." I'm Asian, or I'm black, or I'm white. And it's a little bit disconnected maybe from what you actually believe and how you live your life. But when you say that you're a disciple, by definition, it means that you are actually following somebody, right? Uh, One of the stronger narratives in our culture is that we should follow our heart. But even in that narrative, nobody would say, uh, I'm a disciple am I following? My heart. So therefore, I'm a disciple of my heart because that sounds a little bit foolish, I think, right? Most people would say that and they would – so even in that kind of context, uh, people wouldn't use the word disciple. But when you think about a word disciple and when you think about what it means to follow somebody as a disciple, uh, it means that we're following somebody outside of ourselves. Uh, we're actively being a people who want to follow a particular person. And in the case of Christianity, it means that we are following Jesus Christ. And so a disciple is someone whose values, whose identities, whose way of life is formed around who Jesus is, around what he has done, and around what he has said. That is what it means to be a disciple. I think this passage is pretty helpful in thinking about discipleship because when it tells us how to make disciples, by implication it tells us what it actually means to be a disciple, and it outlines it very nicely for us, and it tells us three things. It tells us that a disciple is somebody who belongs. A disciple is somebody who learns, and a disciple is somebody who goes. So we'll look at those three things. Now, first, a disciple belongs. Uh, where do we see this idea of belonging here in this passage? And I think it's actually built into this idea of baptism. Of baptism. And I know some people, uh, maybe you don't think that baptism is all that important. And some people I know are a little bit weirded out by this uh, idea of baptism. You know, I, I joined this book club in uh, my, my town in Hoboken, and I was talking to this lady and uh she you know she's like what do you do i'm like i'm a pastor she's like oh that's great you're a pastor you know i i I went to church for a while and i loved it i said oh you loved it and then she said yeah but then they tried to get me to get baptized and i got like weirded out so i just left and stopped going and uh it's not unusual i think to meet people like that and it's not unusual to even meet somebody who's a christian who hasn't been baptized because the topic of baptism usually doesn't come up until a membership class and i think uh at least today, a lot of people assume baptism is not that important because they say well baptism doesn't really uh, isn't necessary for salvation, so what 's the point it 's just symbolic it doesn 't really mean anything and the assumption there is that things that are important in the Christian faith are things that are only things that have a direct correlation to salvation, which is not a good assumption to make because then we don 't have this robust faith but baptism is actually important. Uh, and why is it important and I want to give you one theological reason and one practical reason the theological reason is this baptism is important because it's a sign Uh, it's a sign that the promises of God are for that person who is getting baptized Uh, Saint Augustine would say that a sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible grace the reformers would say that a sacrament is the visual preaching of the word And so if you think about it, if the preaching of the word is important, if you think what I'm doing now, this sermon, uh, is important, maybe you don't think that, but if you think it's important, then then you should also assume and say a sacrament is important, and if a sacrament is important, then you should also say baptism is important. But the fact that it's a sign uh, doesn't mean that it's unimportant, because we use signs all the time in our lives, and we know that they're important because they communicate important things. Uh, A wedding ring is a sign. It's a sign that you belong to somebody else. It's a sign that you've made a commitment to somebody else. A sports jersey is a sign that you belong to a certain team. And yes, maybe in certain contexts, it's not as important to have these signs out. But in other contexts, it's very important that you have these signs out and that you wear these signs because it communicates to the rest of the world who you belong to. Uh, I've said this before, but uh, if you don't have your wedding ring in your home, that's okay. Okay. But if you don't have your wedding ring in a club full of people trying to hook up, then maybe uh, in that context a sign is important. If you're, uh, if you're playing a game or a sports uh, in a sports team, uh, a sports jersey would be important because it tells you that you belong to this team. And baptism, I think, is also an important sign because one of the things it says is that you belong to a community. First, the community of the, the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, And by implication, it also means that you belong to a community, a spiritual community, the family of God, which is the church. And that leads to this practical reason why baptism is important. Uh, Baptism means that you are uh, going public with your faith. Uh, When you get baptized, you make this public statement, and you say that I've decided to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. I've decided to follow him. And everybody can see that you are making this public declaration and uh if especially if you don't have any kind of christian background you have to understand that that's a hard step for some people to take because that that's what makes it real right that's what makes it say you know i am committing to jesus and i'm so committed that i'm going to publicly declare that through baptism uh our culture says that your faith is private and personal uh but that's not what the bible uh, portrays when it comes to faith because faith is meant to be public and making a public statement of faith before a community of believers is an important step to being a Christian because it clearly tells uh, people, it tells a community that you've made this important decision and this important step to follow Christ, and you want other people involved in that, in your life to follow Christ. And that means baptism is also a declaration that you belong. You belong to a spiritual community. You belong to a church. Uh, if you ever want to get baptized here at Good News Church, one of the things that you do is you go through a membership class because getting baptized and becoming a member of the church are um, are linked together and so uh... the great commission is not simply about <clears throat> making people make this profession of faith and then they kind of do what they want but the Great great commission is about making disciples and baptism is simply the beginning of that that journey uh... you know i hear <clears throat> Uh, when you when you are finished with a school and you're about to get a degree, some people call it a graduation, uh, but other schools actually call it a commencement because they don't see it as an end of something, but they be- see it as a beginning of something. And baptism is kind of like that. It's a commencement. It's a beginning of a life of following Christ, which takes a lifetime to grow in. And growth and maturity doesn't happen uh, in your own private time, but growth and maturity To follow Christ takes place in the context of community where you have things like learning, where you have things like accountability, and where you have things even like discipline. So first, a disciple is one who belongs. Second, a disciple learns. A disciple is somebody who learns. Verse 20 says that making disciples also means teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded And immediately, I think you should see that the kind of teaching that it's talking about here is not the strictly intellectual kind that fills your mind with knowledge and puffs uh, up your brain. And I think it's important to say that, especially um, with our community, because many of you may be educated. Many of you know how to use things like Google. Many of you probably read books, and so you acquire all of this knowledge. Uh, You could probably find lectures online and so forth. But that is not the kind of uh, teaching or learning that Jesus is talking about here because there's there's a statement that says, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. And it's it's linked with obeying Christ. It's linked with following Christ and living a life around what Jesus has said. Let me give you an an example of this. You know, when I was 17, uh, my dad, uh, you know, he had a very old car. It was like a 10-year-old car, and he was going to give it to me to drive And to use when I was in high school. Uh, But the only thing with this car is it wasn't automatic transmission. It was a stick shift. So in order to use this car, I actually had to learn stick shift. And for some reason, my dad thought, you know, the best place to teach Sam how to drive stick shift is we're going to go to this mountain reservation where the roads are super narrow. And there's like all these hills uh, going up and down. And people are bright. Biking and running on that same narrow path, and so we we got up there, and I'm um, trying to do it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to hit somebody, and this path is so narrow. I kept stalling, and I just kind of gave up. Uh, you know, I, I'm not super great in Korean. My dad is not great in English, so there's like communication issues, and he's trying to teach me what to do, and I don't understand what he's saying, and so you know, we just got frustrated, and we just went home. So later that night, what I did is I went on the internet. And I looked up, how do you drive stick shift, right? <laughs> and I read this article, and I go, oh, okay, that's how you drive stick shift. And I, I had a lot of knowledge in my head. But just because I had a lot of knowledge in my head, when I went back out to learn how to drive, uh, you know what happened? I still kept stalling pretty violently, right? And the knowledge, you know, it helped, and it was important because it gave me this this framework of understanding how to drive, but I still had to learn how to use that knowledge for the purpose of actually driving. And so what I started to do is I started to pay attention. When my dad was driving, I would look at his feet. I would look at what his hands are doing. Uh, <clears throat> and I would, after a few more times of really practicing, having that knowledge that I read from the article on the internet, in addition to seeing how my dad was driving stick shift, finally I would say I learned how to drive. I had the kind of knowledge that I think it's talking about here. You see, being a disciple of Jesus Christ means you have to learn, and of course there is this intellectual component to it where you have to learn information, you have to study and you have to learn what the Bible says, but that, uh, it can't end there because the ultimate goal is not simply to have more knowledge. By the way, uh, just to plug, Pastor John is having this interchurch Bible study that we announced before. Uh, he said about five churches are represented, so... Uh, we, we want to encourage you to go because uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of teachers, uh, Pastor John included, which I think his dominant gift is to teach, and, and you'll learn a lot. Right? You'll learn a lot. But if you come out of there saying, ooh, I, I have all this knowledge and I have all this theology in my head, but it doesn't translate into application in your life, then you haven't fully done what a disciple is supposed to do in taking that knowledge and applying it to your life to follow and to obey Christ. When we do that, it's kind of like you know driving a stick shift on the internet without really ever driving a car and uh i'll also say this uh, I also think maybe some people here you you value people with like i don't know bible training or a seminary education, and of course i I don't want to devalue that that's important to teach the Bible, but let me also say that is not everything and i've I've been to seminary. And there's plenty of people who have seminary training who are horrible followers of Jesus Christ, uh, because it does not end there, right? You have the knowledge, you have the Bible training. Of course, that's what something we want to to give you, but at the same time, discipleship is a community project, and you can learn uh, from one another and from. Other mature believers, and you can watch and see how they live their lives, and see how they follow Christ in their lives, and that is a kind of knowledge that you need as well. And so, discipleship is not simply just sitting in a classroom. Discipleship is not simply going on the internet and listening to lectures and getting all this knowledge, but discipleship is also taking that knowledge and seeing how people apply it to actual life. You know, this past summer, I was uh, I was talking to an older pastor. And he's a pastor in a church on the Upper West Side. And he was telling me, uh, this, it's kind of funny. He was saying, You know who the biggest discouragement, uh, the, the most discouraging people in my church are? I said, Oh, who? He said, It's, it's the so called mature Christians. And I was like, Oh, what do you mean by that? And he's like, Well, I say so called because they aren't really mature. You know, they're the type of Christians who grew up in church and they have a lot of head knowledge and they know a lot of Bible and they know a lot of theology. And they're the type of people who feel like they never get anything out of Bible studies because they they seem to know it all. And so they're often the ones who are the most disgruntled and they feel like they aren't growing and they aren't getting fed enough. And uh, I said, oh, okay, so, you know, what do you, you know, what do you say to them? How do you, how do you deal with them? And I I loved his response. (laughs) He said this. Well, he said, you know, I simply asked them, okay, so you know a lot and you don't feel like you're growing because you're not learning anything new. So if you feel like you know it all, who are you discipling? Oof, right? Who are you discipling? And they said, well, nobody. And he said, that's probably why you're not growing. That's probably why you're not growing. Because you're not using that knowledge and everything that you've been given and everything that you've been learn- learned to raise up other people and to raise disciples. I think that's right. I think that's right. Because, you know, after a while, uh, if you're in the church for a long time, you you are going to come to a point where you you can probably anticipate the right answers in Bible study. Uh, You're going to start to think to yourself, haven't we talked about this before? Haven't we gone over this before? At some point, uh, if you want to grow as a disciple, I think uh, the step you have to take is you have to start to see yourself as a disciple maker, a disciple maker. And that's what I want to challenge you uh, in this congregation to view yourselves as too, that you are a disciple-maker, and if you feel like you've kind of plateaued and you're not growing, you got to disciple somebody. you got to use that knowledge and all of your experiences to raise up other people and to show them and to model what it means to use everything that you've learned to actually follow Christ in your life. Who are you discipling if you feel spiritually stuck? And this leads to, I think, the last point, and it's a disciple goes. Now, you hear that question, who, who are you discipling? Maybe your immediate response is to say, well, there's nobody for me to disciple. Nobody has ever come to me asking me to disciple them. Let me encourage you. Uh, I'm a pastor, and uh, I can probably count on my hand how many people have actually asked me to disciple them. <laughs> uh, not, not many people uh, really s- have sought it out. Uh, at least especially for me, right? Nobody's ever come and said, hey, can you disciple me? Uh, it doesn't really happen that way. Uh, but I think the direction of this passage uh, says it's not supposed to happen that way. Uh, you're not supposed to wait and say, well, when somebody asks you to disciple them, then you go and disciple them. But it says to go. That's the direction, right? Not wait and come to let people come to you. It says go, right? Go. That's the direction. By the way, that's a big shift theologically because in the ancient Jewish religion, the temple was the main centerpiece, and people would come to the temple and be gathered there. But when Jesus comes, he he actually declares that temple religion is dead, and he reverses the the trajectory, and he says, you, the church, are now the new temple, but you don't wait for the nations to come to you. You go out to the nations, and you make disciples of all nations. It's a new pattern with this Great Commission, and it's a radical shift. And let me give you some of the practical implications of this, because, you know, I think maybe in the past uh, we kind of assumed people would just, you know, visit churches, and that's why, you know, if you are visiting today, uh, I am thankful that you are here visiting, because I know that it takes out uh, a w- away a morning, a precious morning. But, you know, nowadays, and especially in New York, when people are so busy, uh, it might be people might not be as willing to to visit a church as they once were. Uh, New York feels like everybody's overworked and you only get a certain uh, number of days off. Maybe people who work on Saturdays, Sunday is their only day off. And so it's hard to really sacrifice that to, to go to a church if you're not a believer. Because let's be honest, uh, plenty of people are believers, but even for them, it's hard to come out to church uh, every week. So I imagine it would be that much harder for somebody who's not a Christian to go to a church. Uh, I've I said this before, but I, I've invited right. Well, I've actually invited a, a good amount of people to come and to visit our church service, and I don't think any of them have showed up yet. Uh, I invited this Uber driver. I invited people I met at this book club, um, and a lot of them were pretty interested, and they said, oh, yeah, you know, I would be so interested to check out and go but maybe they only said that because they don't want to hurt my feelings and say no. I get that too. But it's, it's not easy for people to, you know, to – sacrifice a Sunday morning when they have to go grocery shopping, when they have to do laundry, and so forth. And if we're relying upon uh, just a simple invitation and people coming to church in order for them to hear, hear the gospel, well, guess what? Then a lot of people probably are not going to hear the gospel. And so I think this reversal of trajectory, this, this command to go to, to the people, is really important, especially in this day and age. You know, I read this statistic in a book a couple years ago, but it said this. In the West, right? this isn't everywhere else in the world, but specifically in the West, on average, it takes people two years from the point where they come into contact with a Christian and have meaningful discussions about the gospel with a Christian to actually making a decision and becoming a Christian. Right, on average, two years that process takes. The same research also suggests that uh, this time period is not actually getting shorter, but it's actually getting longer. So maybe uh, in a couple years, that average will stretch out to, to three years. And in places where uh, there is no history of Christianity, maybe it doesn't take place a a long time for people to make a declaration of of faith and become a Christian. But here in the West, there's a lot of baggage uh, surrounding Christianity. Uh, There's a lot of baggage, and sometimes it takes a lot of time to try to remove that baggage so that people can clearly see Christ and the gospel and the love of God for how he actually presents himself in Scripture. All this is to say that we can't always expect people to come to church, come to us to learn about the gospel, but we have to be a people who go and seek people where they are. You know, by the way, uh, spending at least two years talking to a person about Jesus, uh, that probably resembles more our picture of what discipleship is than evangelism, right? And... uh, Maybe we've created this uh, too sharp of a dichotomy between what evangelism is and what discipleship is. Now, I had this professor in seminary, and he said, you know, we actually need to disciple non-believers, and we need to evangelize believers. And I think he was trying to be a little provocative, but his main point is we shouldn't have make this too sharp of a division between what it looks like to disciple and what it looks like to evangelize, because uh, the, the truth of the matter is they're, they're probably very, very similar And part of following Jesus is to go and to make disciples. Part of that means you have this long-term program uh, of just long conversations about Jesus, of many, many meals shared together, of many, many mornings and evenings praying for people. Maybe that's what making disciples is supposed to look like for us. Now you hear that. Does that sound daunting? (laughs) I think it would sound daunting. Imagine what it would have sounded like for these 11 disciples, Jesus telling them to go and make disciples of all nations. And were they a super confident bunch here? And I would say no. And we see that in this passage. Look at verse 17, and it says this, that when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. And that, that's a little bit of a curious phrase, especially to insert after they worshiped him. What, is, what do you mean, some doubted? What does that actually mean? And the commentaries say, well, that, that Greek word for doubted is not the same kind of doubt as unbelief, of lacking of faith, but it's more, uh, the meaning is more of they, they hesitated. They hesitated. You think about it, they had this program of what God would do. He would make Israel into a great nation. Israel would become this great kingdom. But then all of a sudden Jesus comes and he dies and he rises from the dead and the program completely changes. And now they're saying, all right, Jesus rose from the dead. Now what? We thought we were supposed to do this and make Israel into a great nation. Now what do we do? They they hesitated. And that's when Jesus gives them this great commission. He gives them this new program of what God is going to do in this world next. And Jesus tells them that you are supposed to go and do this. You are supposed to go and make disciples, not simply out of the people of Israel, but you are supposed to go to all nations and make disciples. And it's kind of like, what? The world? right? All nations? But here's the thing. They, They shouldn't have been overwhelmed because... Jesus tells him something that is so important that should give confidence and hope. And he says this at the end. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In the Old Testament, when God would give a daunting task to somebody, it would often be tied with a promise. And very frequently the promise was his presence, that I would be with you. Genesis 26, he says to Isaac, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. In Exodus 3, when God tells Moses, go and Free your people, free Israel out of the bondage of slavery from the Egyptians, he says this: "I will be with you." When Joshua is tasked to bringing and leading Israel into the promised land, God says, "I will be with you." In Judges six, when Gideon asks God, "How am I going to save Israel?" God says, "I will be with you." Right? over and over and over again, he gives this promise. Now Jesus himself, the resurrected Christ, gives this daunting task to make disciples of all nations, and it follows the same pattern. And he says, I will be with you. I will be with you. That is an important promise for the church. That is an important promise for our church. It means this, that we are never in a position of weakness. We are never in a position of loss. We are never in a position of failure whether it's through our own brokenness, whether it's through persecution, whatever it may be, we are never in that position because the resurrection of Jesus Christ declares victory, victory over sin, victory over death, and it comes with the authority of the king. All churches have to remember that. We have to remember that. Uh, Persecuted churches have to remember that. Dysfunctional churches have to remember that. Small churches like our church have to remember that. Let me, let me be i am going to end here, but let me, uh, let me be a little bit, I don't know, self-revealing. Um, <clears throat> you know, for a long time, I was an assistant pastor, and it's been a little bit over two years now since I've been in this role as a lead pastor. And uh, some of you know the, the previous lead pastor, Pastor John. And I would always say to him, you know, Pastor John— my job is kind of easy. This Being the assistant role is kind of easy because uh, you're always my safety net. Uh, if I mess up, uh, the burden and the responsibility is always on you. Uh, you have to fix it, right? If I do something horrible. If I say something wrong in my preaching, uh, you know, it's your responsibility again. <laughs> you know, my, my job is kind of easy as, as the assistant. And now that I've been in the lead role, uh, certainly I will say it's very different because the weight of ministry and the weight of the responsibility, for sure, um, weighs on me heavier. But reflecting upon this passage and reflecting upon how I thought and what I said, I think I was wrong. I think I was wrong. I don't think Pastor John was my safety net, because at the end of the day, I think it's Jesus Christ who is our safety net. I think even now, as I take this lead role, and even though I feel uh, the heavy burden of ministry and fear of, I guess, quote-unquote, failure, and so forth. I still have a safety net, and it's Jesus Christ. We still have his presence. He still has authority over heaven and earth. None of that has changed throughout the history of the church, regardless of circumstance, regardless of what was going on. None of that has changed. And because of that, there's always hope, there should always be confidence that the gospel will go forth, that disciples will be made, that people will come to know Christ, and that those people will continue to be raised up to make other disciples who will know Christ. And it's happening on a global scale. And maybe in the West, it's a very dry time and a very dead time. But nothing has changed about that truth. And so we labor. We labor in that confidence. We labor in that hope, and we labor knowing that we have Christ and that Christ is here. Let's pray together.